I was thinking about the context for this, and I realized the perspective from cognitive science, from understanding how our brains work, uh, cognitive science was an integrative way to start pulling together different people thinking about thinking, philosophers, neuroscientists, uh, cognitive psychologists, anthropologists, more. Learning science emerged from that, similarly trying to pull in instructional design and, and educational psychologists and cognitive researchers. And that perspective isn't, I think, well-known and used enough, and yet it gives us insight that's really powerful, like that, the properties of media. And so that's the broader perspective I'd like to share, is that this is coming from a way of thinking and looking at the world that gives us really useful handles. And I found it extremely useful. I have the ability to give people insights that they wouldn't have gotten in other ways, just because of that understanding how our brains work, which I think is increasingly going to be important because that's where things are going. We're going to find out what technology can do, what brains can do, and we need to understand that really well to figure out where we fit in this continuing evolving world. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are and wherever you're watching from. My name is Matt Pierce, host of The Visual Lounge, and I'm excited to bring back to the show a guest. His name is Dr. Clark Quinn, and today we're going to be talking about cognitive media. We're going to be talking about some diagrams. We're going to be talking about a spectrum of things because uh, Dr. Quinn is, he is very smart about this stuff and he's got a lot of experience and understanding. And I think here's a key, whether you're in training, learning development, you're in just a creator making for your own like YouTube channel, learning and understanding is really key. And so we're going to, we're going to talk to him about those things. So let's go ahead and introduce him a little bit more so you're familiar with him. Clark Quinn, PhD, provides learning experiences, design strategy to corporations, higher education, government, and not-for-profit organization. An award-winning consultant, internationally known speaker, and author of six books, at least at the time when I got this bio, so it might be up because he's really prolific. He integrates a deep understanding of thinking and learning with technology to improve organizational execution, innovation, and ultimately performance. He learns out loud at learnlets.com tweets at Quinnovator, and works on behalf of clients throughout Quinnovation, and a whole much, bunch more. So please welcome back to the Visual Lounge, Dr. Clark Quinn. Thanks, Matt, and Thanks. great to talk with you today. I will correct two things in your intro. And uh, I'm no longer on what used to be known as Twitter. I've moved off of it. I'm on Blue Sky, I'm on Mastodon, but there's reasons why I think Twitter is uh, a place to leap. Perfect. I totally understood. Uh, that's what we get when we don't update our the bio. So should have checked with you on that, but that's okay. Because here's the thing. You're here, and that's more important than all those other places right now. Uh, Clark, I, I, we always like to start the show with a kind of a practical approach. And, you know, uh, you obviously, you're not necessarily a media creator. I'm sure you've created media in, throughout your career. But as you think about from a learning perspective, what's what's a tip you would give to Folks out there who want to use video, they want to use it for helping people to learn. Is there a tip that you'd give them to help them to be maybe more successful or uh, maybe have that hit the mark a little bit more? I guess my perspective is don't use video for video's sake, for making it more compelling or more interesting. What you should be using video for is to convey dynamic stories. Too often, we use video when we don't have to. And it's a high bandwidth and high production cost uh, effort in many times, in many cases. So 
I would like to reserve using video for when it makes the most sense, not as a panacea and end all. We'll talk today about the specific ways in which certain different media most opportunely support certain types of learning outcomes and cognitive outcomes. And then we can dig into, you know, how can you swap them in and out for a variety and a variety of other. Well, I, I appreciate that as someone who, uh, you know, I use, a, I make a lot of videos. I work for a company that promotes tools that you, you make videos. I, I, I appreciate the advice. So, because I do think there's, there's this balance there, kind of time, cost, effort, and always, I, you always got to ask, is it the right medium to deliver the message? So I appreciate it. No worries. But, and, and it's just, our brains have evolved to uh, collect certain types of information in certain ways and process it in certain ways. And we want to ideally match for that, particularly when we're you know trying to convey the most important message. There are... Video can capture us talking like I'm doing right now, and we can communicate thoughts and elegantly, uh, but too often we can overuse it. We can use it without controls. I just saw an example of this the other day where they were providing things and they didn't really give you pause and restart options. You could mm. go back and say the whole thing, but it didn't automatically just say pause it because you know somebody's just come in the door or something. <laughs> we need control over the media. Think about um, Ken Burns and the Civil War movie he made. It was a whole bunch of static images sequenced together. Those static images were what they had at the time, but they also communicated in powerful ways when he sequenced them together. We don't. We can communicate those stories in multiple different ways. We can use graphic novels. We can use narrative prose. We can use sequences of images linked together with audio or text. Or we can use video. When does each make sense? That's the important issue for me. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, I mean, we, we often refer to Ken Burns and he's such a master of doing those things, right? But those are not uh, not outside the scope of anyone's capability. People can use imagery and they can tell stories and that. So I love that. Um, and we could probably talk about just that alone for a long time. But I want to get into this idea of cognitive properties because when you, when you, we, I connected with you and you said, hey, here's some things that we talk about this. And I'm like, no, um, but I think we need to do a little defining up front because my guess is most people listen to this are saying cognitive properties. What does Clark mean? And so lead us down this path of like, w what is this idea of cognitive properties and as it relates to, to media? Right. I was actually thinking you were going to ask me to define the different types of media because people describe those differently. Oh, yeah. So I actually want to start with that because it's at the front of my mind. Well, I have left of one. When you think of uh, diagrams, and that was one of the things we talked about discussing, they communicate conceptual relationships via spatial re relationships. So when you say up here is this and down here is this, and we have a linkage between them and the other things are linked this other way, we are communicating information. That's not video. That's a static image. And two things, um, cognitive properties I want to separate out now, are static versus dynamic. So there's information that exists, you know, the relationship between uh, roots and, and branches. 
there is dynamics that the roots feed up and grow the branches, but the static relationship is that, you know, the roots are the nourishing from the groundwater, whereas the branches are exporting the leaves, which get energy from the sun. And together, they put those together. Then we have the more dynamic story of an environment where, you know, the, the water cycle, uh, evaporation, condensation, precipitation, and whatever the water is for, where it flows down the hill and gets up in the, in the body of water to evaporate again. We have that cycle. That's dynamic. And sometimes we need to communicate one and sometimes we need to communicate the other. When do... So I'd like to distinguish between diagrams and animations. And when I say animation, many people think about, you know, cartoons moving around. I'm thinking specifically of animating a diagram. Mm-hmm. And then we have photos which capture context and videos which capture dynamic context. Then we have text which captures prose, you know, is a narrative. And then we have audio, which is also a narrative. And each of those are different. Diagrams and animations capture the conceptual. They're not tied to real context. They're an abstraction. Whereas videos and images capture the actual context so you can see behind me what my room looks like because it's actual context we could just have an abstraction i mean a cartoon with a blank background or some arbitrary abstract background which could communicate something different there what i begin to talk about the cognitive properties and when you want to communicate context a photo or a video makes sense. But when you want to communicate a concept, you may be better off with a diagram or an animation. And when you want to communicate narrative, you may want to tell a story. Now, the point I mentioned earlier about, you know, having still photos together become uh, an, a story. Um, video can be used to communicate narratives and is. Had we watch movies and, and TV series, but we're showing the context as well. And we do have to infer the concept unless we are laying it over. So from a learning perspective, the cognitive properties we're talking about are we communicating concept or context? Are we communicating it dynamically or statically relationships? Those are the things, the cognitive properties I'm talking about. And then we need to start thinking about which we need to communicate and what media makes the most sense. And then, of course, we then think about and then how do we mix it up so it's not completely dull and poor? Right? No. Well, OK, so th- there's there's a lot here. And, and those are uh, you, I think we're you know, you're doing a great job at simplifying simplifying what is a, a very complex kind of concept in terms of, you know, there's these properties, these media, this media, these types of media that are good at typically doing. So if I, if I'm at the the you know I'm the instructional designer or I'm thinking about creating media for for learning I'm hearing what you're saying and so now I'm thinking like okay what are maybe the questions or decisions that are going to help me down that path because like you said I if I'm always using a diagram diagrams are great they do a great job at the thing but if I'm always trying to use a diagram it feels like like you said we, the you get fatigue like I, we actually struggle with this in video, right? If I see, put a video up online and it looks the same as every other video, people will say, I've already watched that video or, you know. So I, I'm curious from your perspective because there's the, the practical application here going from this like understanding of these cognitive properties to now I've got to make stuff. Like a, a, lot of our, a lot of our roles is 
as instructional designers, particularly if you're doing uh, really good in-depth design is say understanding those things, but then now it's like, okay, what do I do with it? So what right. what would you say, how do we translate this to what what can someone do now if they understand these things? Two different takes on that. So let's talk about the traditional instructional experience first. You should be presenting an underlying model. Cognitively, models give us good basis for uh, comparing our performance to what the model predicts. It gives us a basis to make decisions. You know, models help us explain what happened and, or predict what will happen. And then we can say, if I did X, the model says this would occur. And if I do Y, the model says that will occur. And this is better than that, so I'll do this. The model tells us that. So we want to communicate a model and the diagram makes sense. But then we want to show how that plays out in context. We have evidence, research-based evidence from cognitive load theory and the like. That showing examples before we give people opportunity to practice makes it easier to then take it on yourself. You see and extract a few examples, and it gives you some guidance. Examples need context. They show how the model plays out in the real world. So suddenly we're talking about watching a video or seeing a static image or a sequence of images telling a story. Examples work best because they really are stories that show I faced this problem, I applied this model, and this was the outcome. It's a story. That's a narrative. And we can use video or, or sequence of static images to convey that. Then we need practice. We need to immerse the learner into an environment and give them opportunity to make choices. Interactivity is something I haven't mentioned in terms of the cognitive properties here. This is more for the media instead of the interactivity. But then we need to allow the learner to make choices and see the consequences of those. So suddenly we're switching again to, and we might, one of the things I didn't talk about in my elicitation of the types of media, I talked about, you know, video at our you know, context with photos or video. And I talked about concepts with diagrams or animation. I talked about narrative with prose or audio, but I didn't talk about graphic novel formats and comics and those types of things where they're semi conceptual and semi-contextually because they strip away some of the details of context and yet provide enough that the learner can recognize the context, but that allows the opportunity to layer the concepts on top of it as well. And so we might mix this up. We might have a graphic novel format of an example and a video format example, and then we put the learner and it might be photorealistic or we might start with a graphic novel. So we're mixing up the media to tell the story. Now, I said sort of two different pedagogies. One was sort of the traditional, you have a model example practice. The other one is you put the learner in the situation. This is more a problem-based type of approach where you specifically chosen an important problem and you provide scaffolding. You've simplified it in certain ways early on and later on they take on more capability. But we might make resources available in the environment so you can pull up a diagram or you can pull up a little example. We might embed that in the story so they're the environment in which you're performing and might have a library of uh, that has the diagrams and it might have a history of case studies that the organization has done in the past that you pull up that are really example. So we are mixing up media to meet different needs because for learning purposes, we have different cognitive roles at different points in the experience. So we avoid boredom in that sense. But then we should be thinking about how are we making sure we're communicating each at the right point in time. Wow. 
you know, what I'm thinking about is, uh, so I've noticed this trend and, and you know, we, obviously we can talk about instructional designers, corporate learning all, all day long. I've noticed in, in the world of non-instructional designers, there's a lot of people out there making training content. It's, you know, we would we would probably balk at it a little bit what it is and, you know, but they're on YouTube, they're YouTube creators, they're teaching cooking or fix a car. But what I, 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 I in that first, particularly in that model, right, where you've got, uh, you know, you've got, you're going to put these things together, right? Model, example, practice. What I've noticed that they're really good at on YouTube, if, if they're doing well on a channel, so not everybody's good at it, but, you know, with the ones that are really good, they 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 hook you with that, here's the problem, right? They somehow draw you in. But then they, in a lot of ways, they're essentially doing this, right? They're modeling something, they're showing the example, but it's not a linear boom, boom, boom. They It's almost like a, a lot of loops because they're coming back to the, the like the thing Here's the problem. Here's here's something you could do. That the, the next thing, um, and and I'm I'm curious if you thought about how, how you might like because obviously you could say like do these three things and that's all we ever do. Is it something that we should be looking at if we're creators and so we're cre- creating instructional content to like build this into you know almost templates that we could then repurpose or is that too structured and it's like everything is going to just because a lot of times it's like, well, it's so specific, it's going to just be different every time. But are there kind of general frameworks that you, you've built out or you think we could build out from from these kind of this approach? There are templates that can't bear are structures for what good instructional design is, saying, giving the model, then give examples, then give practices, emerge from empirical research. And that serves as a good template. We want to avoid too much templatization. I remember a company of many years ago was following a David Merrill's dictips, and they created this very rigorous system that you talked about the type of objective you had, and then it limited the types of things you could do all the way through. And it made really rigorously accurate instruction. And you'd rather pull your eyes out than actually go through. That was unpleasant. So, um, but uh, you have to be careful because some of the, you know, I repaired my dryer with a video from YouTube. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what I have. It wasn't a learning experience. It was performance support. It led me through the steps and diagnostic and figure out what to do. And But I didn't, ha- I haven't had to do that again for years and years. It would have been silly for me to learn anything from it. It was just perfectly performance support. And you pointed out a bit of a, a evolutionary selection process going on that the good videos are the ones that get viewpoints because there are people who naturally draw upon some of these principles. Um, and, you know, that iterative cycle you were talking about, they're showing this step and talking about what leads to it. And in their narrative, they talk a little bit about the models that gave them the guidance. And Andrew Schoenfeld at Berkeley did some of the greatest stuff of actually going down the way and talking about the thinking behind each step, which experts often don't have access to. Um, cognitively, the research at the University of Southern California's cognitive technology group by people like Richard Clark showed that 70% of what experts do, they don't have conscious access to, which is really problematic for instructional design because you've got these experts doing things and they don't even know what they're doing. They can tell you what they but they struggle to tell you what they do and you really have to work hard to pull it out. These people somehow, the best YouTube providers are managing to articulate the underlying thinking and then showing how it plays out in context step by step by step through a process. And you may learn something from it if it is something you do frequently and you go back and view it several times each time until you've sort of internalized it. 
But we have to think a lot about what is the context, what is the need, how frequently. When you look at the principles of designing instruction, the criteria that determine how much practice you need and how much articulation tend to be, it's how inherently complex is it, how frequently you perform it in the real world, how important is it if, if you get it wrong. That are a lot of these factors that are sort of not articulated explicitly in these YouTube videos and the selection between them, but end up playing a big role in whether you're talking about performance sport or, act. you know, are you happy leaving the information in the world? Do you absolutely have to put something in the head? And if so, what and how? Well, I, I appreciate that distinction because I think it is one that, uh, it, and it's not as nuanced, but it becomes kind of nuanced. So is this learning? Is this performance support? And there is a lot of things that are just performance support, right? Just show me how to do it. Don't, I don't have to, I don't have to know it. I don't have to, you know, draw on that knowledge at a later point or build necessarily build from that, that framework to understand this other framework. Um, so I think I, I want to call that out because I do think that is a, a really insightful point. And, and I, and I, I know the difference, but like hearing you say, it's like, oh yeah, duh. A lot of this is not instruction. It's, it's really that. So um, I'm, I'm curious because we've covered, I feel like we've covered a lot, but what else are we missing or what else do we need to know to, again, to kind of keep us moving forward here with this understanding of the, you know, cognitive properties of, of, of using these things in a way, uh, because I, I do think we sometimes get into this cycle of it, particularly instructional design world where it's, you know, there's an academic field for a reason but, and it's academics are good. I think, and we need those, we need that work, that research. But oftentimes then, you know, it, just in even my own experience, I, I'll be reading a paper and saying, okay, these are good things. And I, the application of it is like, well, I don't know. It doesn't maybe try, make the bridge the gap to like what I actually can do or how I would, how I do it, or even how my audience responds comparatively to the, the, the study, you know, the body of the study of the people that went through it. So is there other things we need to understand as about cognitive properties? Well, yes. <laughs> so I, um, suggest that really learning scientists is rocket science. So the brain is arguably the most complex thing in the known universe and trying to systematically get changes in it by, you know, you know, sort of random perturbations is not the way to do it. We have the researcher pointed to, we have very good prescriptions in general that have teased out the importance of practice and the importance of deliberate practice and spacing of practice and a whole bunch of nuances. But putting it together for any specific circumstance that you're designing to support, there will, won't be one study that tells you how you should do that. What you're doing is putting together different aspects, which is why, by the way, you're starting to see also a move towards more iterative approaches. So you need to create your best first guess, but then you should test it and say, oh, this part's working, that part's not. Let's tune that a little bit okay, it's working better, let's do it, you know, but fine-tuning this thing, look, it's doing it. And you look at uh, Michael Allen's Sam's successful approximation model, or the uh, Megan Torrance's llama, like agile management approaches, they're moving to more creative first draft. Even David Merrill has moved from bone uh, display theory to ID2, and now his pebble in a pod is very much, you know, focus on the core practice first, Get that right to twisting and tuning and then add other stuff around. So the point I'm trying to make is that research gives us good prescriptions. We need to apply it in a creative way 
focus on engagement as well without violating the principles and then test it and tune it to see what's happening. Um, because we're not like concrete. We don't have totally predictable properties. Our brains can even change, you know, a little bit of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Uh, when you're observing people doing things, it changes their understanding of what they can do. Uh -huh. Many people have created and built technology solutions and tested it and found out that people go, oh, well, now that I can see this, I want you to also do this and get rid of that. I don't need that now that you can do this. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is a dynamic process. That's cool. But it does require paying attention. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the the pushback that then comes, because I, I, I completely agree, and I can remember being in my master's program, you know, working a lot of theory, a lot of study of, of different models for learning and things like that. And of course, uh, you know, one of the, we had a journal we had to keep and we'd write I ideas. And so very this great process, but I remember trying to create my own models, thinking, how am I going to create my own models, you know? But I, I remember one thing that is, uh, is common is that kind of that iteration, right? That there is... There is no real learning process without like uh, getting better at developing without iteration. And I think I want to draw back to the, the conversation with the creators as well, because I think that's where they get us. They're really good at this. They, they are testing stuff all the time. Whereas I think in a corporate setting, particularly, or even maybe in an educational setting, it's really hard to do that. And I know just from my own experience, if I have to make a video or some kind of piece of media that's going to go out. The, the the cycle time for me to come back to to iterate on that is probably not very quick. It might be a year. It might be two years. And so, you know, from a practicality standpoint, what advice would you give to folks who are saying like, yeah, that, I love this idea of iterating, but I can't iterate that fast because all the, there's, uh, you know, 400 courses that they want. There's these pressures, that pressure, you know, it's just the reality of, of the work is that these things take time cost money, things like that. So I, I, I'm not expecting like for you to have a silver bullet because I don't think there is one, but I'm curious what, what advice do you give to folks like in that situation? I, I give a varied forms of advice. The problem is, is we put ourselves in this position or allowed ourselves to be put in this position where this expectation where if we give you PowerPoints and PDFs, you can pop it in this program and turn it out on the web with a quiz and we're done. They have unrealistic expectations of what learning is. They have unrealistic expectations of what the process needs to be. And they have unrealistic expectations of what learning can do. If we give people information, they'll change their behavior and we're done, right? Which empirically isn't true. We're not formological beings. Otherwise, if we get, got new information, we change our behavior, but we don't. It takes practice. It takes a lot of development. It takes getting rid of old things. We don't unlearn them. We learn over them. Uh, sorry, can't resist addressing uh, a myth along the way. But we need to change the perception, and that's going to be hard. So I've told people, you know, do a little bit of it's easier to get forgiveness and permission. Focus most on making more meaningful practice. Just make a better Britain multiple choice question that's just a scenario, mini scenario, where there's a situation they have to make decisions instead of asking them to respond or pull out new information. We actually have evidence that just pulling out information doesn't lead to behavior, but actually making decisions, you don't even need. There was always this belief you needed to make sure you knew the information before you applied it. It turns out that requiring people just to make the decisions requires them to pull that information out of memory and supports the learning as well. So you only need the high-level questions. So... It's, it's a dual 
there are, are multiple front attack. We need to change people's expectations, help them understand what learning is better, why. We need to put less in the head and more in the world when we can. That's a much more effective solution. And we need to be subversively creating uh, learning that's more effective within the constraints we work in, but also start measuring and showing that by making these changes, we're making a bigger impact. I know we resist evaluation a lot, and yet it's going to be the key towards moving ourselves forwards. Well, I, I've got a quote for my for my day: "Less in the head, more in the world." I love that. That is, uh, whew, that is, that's 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 a great statement. So, uh, no, thank you for that advice. And I think that uh, what are, I think we'll, we'll we're gonna we'll end our formal conversation on that. I want to get to speed right here in a second, but I just want to say that I, I love that. Right, that there's this process that we've got it. We've got to just you got to do it. Ask for forgiveness, and otherwise we'll never move forward. And we keep we'll keep do, delivering the same things. And I. I love that advice because I think it applies to this conversation. I think it applies to a lot of conversations I have around video and what's true about, about like how people are making video, what types of videos they're making. So, uh, Clark, thank you for that good, good piece of advice. I appreciate it. No worries. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna jump into speed round questions. If you're new to the show, these are quick, uh, fast answers to questions that we decide by rolling a dice. So we're gonna play our stinger, and we'll see you in just a second. All right, Clark, here we go. We're going to bring up our dice cam because that's right. We have a dice cam and we're going to roll for, we got a 12-sided die, 12 different questions. Uh, and the first question is number seven. So here we go. Question number seven. What's a hobby or interest you've always wanted to pursue, but haven't had a chance to as of yet? Oh my goodness. Um, you have so much free time with all the things that you're doing. Um, hobby I've always wanted to do, but haven't had to. I don't know. It might be um, uh, paddleboarding because oh. I'm an old to jump up on a surfboard anymore. I haven't done that in a while. And I'm thinking maybe moving to a paddleboard wouldn't be a good way to keep the ability to go out in the ocean and ride without having to paddle and jump to my legs anymore. But I haven't had a chance to really give that a go. Yeah, that's, that sounds super fun. Got a friend that does it on Lake Michigan. And she she absolutely <laughs> loves it. She'll go out though sometimes. She actually tries to surf in Lake Michigan. Uh, last time I knew it was like October, November, and it was cold. <laughs> so it's very cold, but they do get some waves there. So they, they absolutely do. So all right, let's go back to our dice cam. Here we go. Second second roll, and the dot is at the bottom, so we know that's a six. I'm teaching people dice, what it means, <laughs> how to read the dice. So number six. Uh, share a piece of advice that you've received that has had a lasting impact on you. I'm impervious to advice. I just do it. <laughs> I guess it's to, I try really hard at this and I'm not good enough at this, but this is, I believe, really important in lasting advice is to talk less, listen more, ask more questions. I care about learning. I just, uh, sometimes get so tied up in my head that I forget to stop and go, wait, let's check the context. So that would be my, the advice that's persisted with me. Although it's a more case of do as I say, not as I do. I love it. It's another, it's another great, great piece of advice because it is easy, especially when you're, your ex, expertise is in an area, it's easy to, to run. But, uh, all right, let's do one more here. So dice towers up and we are going to go to question four. So your last speed round question Ooh, this is a fun one. What's a guilty pleasure song or movie that you secretly love? Is there 
something that you oh. you love music wise or movie wise that maybe we wouldn't think about oh, Renity. I love the TV show Firefly it was a mashup of West and sci-fi and the movie is one of the ones I keep on my iPad to watch if I have a long which I haven't had in a long time and now they have movies spells easily available on planes but it's just to me fun uh, it's not high cinema um but I love the message I love the story I love the the humor I just it's fun it's my go-to pleasure perfect I love that answer great answer well, Clark, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and 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 learn from you. I mean, I've I've enjoyed many many sessions sitting in your sessions, just picking up tidbits and ideas, and uh, being having my own concepts challenge. So, uh, if someone else wants to learn from you, connect with you, where should they look? Where what would you point us to? Um, I will point you to Quinnovation dot com, which is fortunately under my name there on the in the video, um, and. I think out loud, as you mentioned, at learnlets.com. That's my blog. And um, I try to, I've now pretty much devolved to posting once a week, Tuesdays uh, there. And it's sort of my random thoughts, but it tends to be what I'm involved in, what it's going. And sometimes it's more theoretical and sometimes it's more pragmatic. But um, those are the two places that are best track. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, so that I'm somewhat active there and multiple forms of my activities. Perfect. I definitely recommend people go out and follow you, find you, read your stuff. It's always good. As we wrap up today's show, we always ask our guests, uh, Clark, for our fi- their final take. So, Clark Quinn, what's your final take? My final take is, I was thinking about the context for this, and I realized the perspective from cognitive science, from understanding how our brains work. Uh, cognitive science was an integrative uh way to start pulling together different people thinking about thinking, philosophers, neuroscientists, uh, cognitive psychologists, anthropologists, more. Learning science emerged from that, similarly trying to pull in instructional design and, and educational psychologists and cognitive researchers. And that perspective isn't, I think, well-known and used enough, and yet it gives us insight that's really powerful, like that the properties of media and so that's the broader perspective I'd like to share is that this is coming from a way of thinking and looking at the world that gives us really useful handles. And I found it extremely useful. I have the ability to give people insights that they wouldn't have gotten in other ways just because of that understanding how our brains work, which I think is increasingly going to be important because that's where things are going. We're going to find out what technology can do, what brains can do, and we need to understand that really well to figure out where we fit in this continuing evolving world. Love it. And excited to see what we continue to learn because the brain, like I said, is it is more complex than rocket science, I'm pretty sure, but uh, it's good stuff. So Clark, thank you again for joining me on the Visual Lounge. A pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, everybody, you heard it. Clark drops new content on Tuesdays. You can go read and learn, become a better creator of instruction, understand these processes so that you can develop training that has better impact. You can create a better message. If you're not an instructional designer, you're saying, oh my gosh, there's so much out there. Absolutely. There's there's people who've learned about this and you can apply it to your stuff too. So with that said, you know, we love it if you like or subscribe to the show. Of course, you can leave comments or reviews. That helps us to know what we can do better. And if you've got suggestions, you can email us. We've got an email, old school, thevisuallounge at techsmith.com. We're also now on TikTok, which is crazy. So you can see some of the great quotes if you just want to follow us over there as well, because we'll take these this show's 
get some of the best quotes, put them up there. Uh, makes it easy to stay in touch if you don't want to watch all the entire show. With that said, though, we hope that you take the things that you're learning and apply it to your life, apply it to your practice, get better at what you're doing, and take some time to level up every single day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.